Welcome to This is the North podcast, your source of transformative conversation, an intentional challenge to the systems holding back the North of England. Hosted by Alison Dunn, an award-winning charity chief executive and former solicitor. This podcast is supported by Society Matters Community Interest Company and is dedicated to curating and sharing knowledge, powering the change we need for a more equal and inclusive society. In this episode, we're discussing Britain's housing crisis, the economic factors at play, the affordability of housing, supply and demand imbalances, rising rents and a lack of social housing, as well as disrepair across all tenures. I'm pleased to welcome today Mark Henderson, who's the CEO of Home Group, Andrew Burnham, who's the Interim Director of Operations at Crisis, and Sati Ray, who is the Engagement Manager at Northern Housing Consortium. Hello and welcome to each of you. I'm going to start by asking you if you could briefly give a summary of who you are, what you do, how you got here and how you expect to contribute to the themes of our conversation today. If I could start with you first, Mark. Well, morning. I'm Mark Henderson, our Chief Executive of Home Group. So we are one of the larger housing associations in the country, born in the northeast about 90 years ago, partly as a result of Jarrow March. So quite a rich history behind the organisation. Since then, we've grown. We've got about 60,000 homes as far north as Dundee, as far south as Devizes. And we also built a number of homes, maybe 1,500 homes a year, both for sale and social rented market right across the UK. Thank you. Andrew? Hi there. Hi, I'm Andrew Burnup. I'm Interim Director of Operations for Crisis. Crisis are a national homeless organisation established in 1967. We are a policy and campaigning organisation, but also deliver services up and down the country in nine centres, one of which is based in Newcastle, uh, which is where I'm based. Worked in homelessness for almost 30 years. Goodness me, can't believe I'm quite saying that. And had a range of different roles in the voluntary sector and also in local government. Welcome, Andrew. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Sadie? Hi, my name is Sati Wright and Member Engagement Manager for the Northern Housing Consortium. We're a membership body for the social housing sector, representing the three northern regions, the North East, North West and Yorkshire and Humber. Our members include housing associations, local authorities and ALMOs, which are those that manage the stock on behalf of local authorities. And we bring members together to share ideas, share learning and use their voice to local and national government. Thank you very much. Well, we'll get started. So I think it's fair to say that commentators of all colours across the housing system would describe the British system at the moment as broken, perhaps even beyond repair. How would you define the state of our housing system today, Andrew? So all forms of homelessness are going up in England, and this is driven by a number of factors. So we see increased inflation, a squeeze in people's incomes, the cost of living crisis, which is obviously a lot of talk of that in the press at the moment, rise in rents as landlords in the private rented sector need to pay for their rent to buy mortgages, housing benefit, which is a huge issue. Housing benefit through LHA has been frozen since 2020, so whilst rents increase, benefit entitlement hasn't kept pace with that. There's a lack of genuinely affordable housing in both social and private rented sectors. And also governments over many years have failed to build enough homes that are truly affordable to keep up with need. We have nearly a quarter of a million households across England and now experience the worst forms of homelessness, including sleeping in tents, spending nights with friends or with family on sofa surfing, or in unsuitable temporary accommodation and nightly paid bed and breakfast. 
We've also seen since 2010 rough sleeping across England increase by 74%. Last year, councils spent £1.7 billion providing temporary accommodation, an increase of 9% on the previous year. There's currently over 100,000 households, including 131,000 children, who languish in temporary accommodation, which is the highest figure in 25 years. Here in the northeast, there's over 800 households in temporary accommodation, and across the north, over 10,000 households living in temporary accommodation. And local authority areas in the northeast have seen increases that I've never seen before people trapped in unsuitable TA or in bed and breakfast. So I would say, by any measure, the system is broken, and politicians have failed repeatedly to try and fix it for decades. Well, there's a lot in there for us to unpick, and I'm going to turn to you, Mark. Having heard all of that, do you agree with Andrew's assessment and, and what do you think are the key factors contributing to the housing crisis? And if you were going to sort it out, Mark, as I'm sure you will, what's the top three priorities that you would be working on right now? Wow. If there were only three priorities that needed to fix the housing crisis, then we'd do it and the housing crisis would be over, I'd like to think. This is something, and it's not just been the past few decades, it's been... For hundreds of years, we've just singly failed to deal with the housing crisis in this country. I think, bottom line, this comes down to our general policy approach. So, first of all, we tend to treat it as a one-size-fits-all kind of a problem. Uh, And it's not the case. There are different kinds of housing crises. There's a northern housing crisis, there's a southern housing crisis. There's a crisis of poverty, there's a crisis of support. So I I think actually understanding the causes of the crisis is the first bit. But if I had a magic wand or you made me dictator of the world, a, a position I quite fancy on occasion, three things I would do. Because bottom line, we just don't build enough homes in this country. That's what we need to do, just at the very core of this. And until we start building enough homes, we will never, ever, ever fix the housing crisis. So build far more homes. And to do that, we need to create a certainty to be able to allow people to invest, because it's social housing, it's private housing, it's local authority housing, it's the whole range of things. So we need a housing plan. That doesn't sound too hard to me. We need a housing plan that lasts longer than the next housing minister. So we need something that is there for 10, 15, 20, 25 years that transcends different governments that all parties can sign up to. That is the first part to building enough homes. Second part, uh, I think, is about quality. There's little point in building 100,000 homes tomorrow if they're all going to fall down in 30 years' time or require significant investment. So we need to understand quality. So that's the quality of design, the quality of space, the ability, it's adaptability, so that you you can actually stay in a house if you so choose for your life, and that's not always possible these days. And then the third bit, and this is something we're seeing more and more of in recent years, is just the ability to be able to build houses, so the skills gap. Yeah, we need far more apprenticeships. We need much more money spent on innovation because it's not just about traditional forms of construction. We need to actually to be able to, to innovate new kind of energy systems, new kind of ways of building homes, and to be able to support that and do it really, really well. So skills innovation, a plan, and quality. Uh, if you can do those threes, I think we're on our way. But it's really complicated things. There's a whole bunch of stuff underneath that as well. And I think that's the challenge, isn't it? So Michael Gove has done some good stuff, I hear, in terms of social housing regulation and we've got a rent reformers bill coming. But what I don't see is that housing plan or any indication of where the money's going to come from to build the number of homes that we need. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, I think... 
I like to be the, the glasses half full kind of a person. We seem to be heading towards the general agreement and certainly your know, Northern Housing Consortium, National Housing Federation and the trade bodies are pushing and, and it seems to be a reasonably open door that we need a long-term housing plan. Politicians seem to be recognising that. Are we going to get it before the next general election? I doubt that. But I think at least the seeds of that are being sown in the various parties at the moment. So that gives me some hope we are getting there. But as you say, that's part of it. The funding, for particularly for social housing, we need to have a serious look at that because affordability in all its definitions has just fundamentally changed over particularly the last decade with the different kind of grant rates, the different kinds of support, the ability for local authorities to intervene in the marketplace. All of that stuff needs significant reform as well. Because there's far fewer people living in social housing now than there was once upon a time. If we go back to the 50s, I think 40%, I read somewhere, of people were living in social housing. I think it's as low as 7% now. So getting those homes right and getting the quality of the build in the right places is really important. I was also reading about an initiative in Vienna where I think more than 60% of the population in Vienna, regardless of income, actually still live in social housing. It's very prized in beautiful buildings, in lovely places where people want to live. We don't seem to be able to do that in the UK. Well, maybe not now. I remember when I was at school, I remember Bernadette. Bernadette's family got a social house and they were the top dogs in our class. You know, this was something to aspire to and everyone was really, really jealous. So, you know, I'm getting on a bit now, but that was what, 50-odd years ago. So it's not that long, and social housing genuinely was something to aspire to. But since then, I think there's been a lot of stigmatisation, which is deeply unfortunate and quite, quite wrong. I think the funding model has changed. Right to buy, whether it was good, bad or indifferent, but what it didn't allow was a replacement of the homes that were then sold on. And all of those things have really conspired against having a significant amount of social housing in our country. There is this kind of aspiration to own a home and the way house prices go. You know, you can see people use a house purchase as a future pension pot. And that is just a fundamentally unfair way to run a housing system, a pension system or a society for that matter. Well, we might come back to some of those points, but firstly, I wanted to ask you, Sadie. Mark mentioned that there are differences, challenges between the North and South and how they're experiencing the housing crisis. Are there unique regional factors influencing availability and affordability, for example? Yeah, Alison, I think as Mark's just mentioned, he talked about quality. And we've got 3.8 million poorly insulated homes across the north, costing around £680 per annum to those households. So housing quality is a big challenge across the north. We've got colder and we've got older homes. The social housing sector, like the organisation that Mark runs, manages a lot of stock. But the challenge there is that it's those poorly insulated homes across the private rented sector. And that is something we really, really need to look at and address. So there's a lots of great work being done across the social housing sector to address those poorly insulated homes. And then we've also got, as Andrew mentioned, the LHA and that is really, really squeezing hard-pressed households. So a shortfall of around 1,240 for people's pockets, really. 6.9% of homes advertised for rent in the north are at values below or at LHA, and that's just not affordable at all, and it's really having an impact on northern households. And when we say LHA, what do we mean? It's the local housing allowance, really. It's what is used for private tenants that is used to calculate the housing benefit. Yeah. I heard Mark mention in his 
answer to my last question about how property is being used to produce personal wealth. And I know that, you know, there's been a big push for buy-to-let mortgages in particular. What's the impact of that being on the private rented sector in particular? Yeah, I've never known it like this in the northeast. You know, with the people that we support, often it is difficult to access any form of accommodation, but it's always accessible or has been. You know, we can negotiate with landlords, we can offer bonds, we can provide support, we can negotiate access. That has almost come to a grind and, and shudder and halt in the last sort of 12 to 18 months, particularly into the private rented sector. As Sati has mentioned, you know, in terms of local housing allowance rates, less than 5% of properties now are rented at that rate where it's truly affordable to people on benefits. So there's huge competition. There's competition from people who were previously probably first-time buyers, from people who maybe years ago were probably accessing social housing, but now everybody is fighting for a really scarce resource. We also have that coupled with increasing landlords leaving the sector. So landlords selling properties because obviously, you know, the costs are increasing across the board for them. Their mortgage costs are increasing on rent-to-buy products. But there's also been some chat, you know, around affordability of housing. And I think this is this is also something which in my years I've kind of scratched my head over, I suppose, around what is what is truly affordable in terms of a social housing product. So social housing is it's not always affordable to those on benefits or, or low incomes. And certainly in recent years, providers have had to bring in affordability checks prior to allocation. Which given this is a you know social housing, the most accessible, it makes you wonder, well, if it's not affordable to people in terms of a social housing product, what else could be affordable to those individuals? And the reason that's happened is really something that was mentioned earlier in terms of how housing developments have been funded. Providers now have to borrow more from the markets to meet the gaps between what they will get in terms of grant provision from central government. But it's also this concept of affordable rents rather than a social rent. So a social rent was historically calculated according to a formula that takes into account local incomes, property values, whereas affordable rents are often set at 80% of a market rent. So 80% of what that rent would be in the private rented sector. And that's the bit which then becomes unaffordable, particularly when benefit rates are so low. But it's been a problem that has been touched on in terms of decades in the making. So in the 1970s, 157,000 new builds across the UK for social rent. Last year, there was 32,000. Only 28,000 of those were affordable homes and only around 4,700 at an affordable rent. The rest of them were taken up on other products for sale or for shared ownership. And in the northeast, we only counted for around about 6% of homes completed. So whilst there is no national target for building social homes at a social rent, new build targets have focused very much on overall housing supply, so on a broadly defined category of affordable, and the government has a wider target of new homes to be completed of around 200,000 each year until 2039, and that target has never been met, and it's been consistently missed year after year after year. So the gap between what's available in the market, what's affordable in the market, and what's accessible in the market to people, particularly on low incomes, is becoming increasingly wide. Yeah, um, very true. And I think part of the, or a significant part of the problem is driven by, by pricing, and it starts with land values. So the availability of land, which pushes land prices, and land prices will then go to the market and will attempt to achieve the biggest the biggest return, the biggest purchase price that they can. And in turn, that then forces whoever is developing the land to seek the best possible value, to make the most profit, so they can squeeze 
the purchase price of that land. The purchase of the land is the most significant part of even building a single house. It has just completely out of proportion to where we are. You know, you talked about Vienna, for sake of argument. It's just very, very different in this country. But that then has a knock-on to the kind of houses you build and then the affordability of those houses because the funding model has changed as well for housing providers. So you look at a social housing provider, we used to get quite a significant grant from the government and that allowed us to build a social house at social rent, so 60%-ish of the market rent. And we would do that in the knowledge we'd lose money on that house for circa 35 years. And then it would start to make a return, which would be put back into the investment, you know, maintaining the house, building new homes, and so on. The grant rate is reduced significantly now. It's now called affordable rent. That's about 80% of the market. We're seeing the return on our investment being pushed out 40, 45, 50 years, even in London, 60, 65 years before you're actually starting to make a return on a home. And that, in turn, reduces the amount of money that we then have to build new homes. So there's just a quite a vicious cycle in the way the, the funding model works for, for by providing housing in the UK, and it mitigates against building new homes. Then add on building safety, add on you know new design standards, etc., etc. That all adds to the cost, that all takes money away from their ability to build new homes. And of course, I don't think anybody would disagree with the concept of building new homes, but there's also this problem of not in my backyard as well, isn't it, that you're constantly coming up against people want new homes as long as they're not blocking their views or on the field next to their house? Well, you say that. I mean, I, I think we've done some, some good work, and certainly National Housing Federation and, and the Home Group as well have done quite a lot of work where we've gone to communities and, and talked about the housing crisis and asked the question, you know, do you recognise we need new social housing? Yes. Do we need affordable housing? Yes. Would you mind if it was in the field next door to your house? Actually, it's changed. It's about 65 70% of people now are starting to say, yes, we recognise the need for that, even if that's next door to us. But of course... The planning system is a very open system. You can get complaints, objections from across society and not just necessarily the people who live directly opposite. It's very hard to secure planning permission these days for, for any kind of development at all. Whether or not the local community recognises the need for it, I think the reality is we've got far more open green spaces in this country than we do uh, building sites and we desperately need to start to open up new areas to build on across the country. And Andrew, how are we going to make this affordable for people? Because, you know, home ownership is something which has been really revered in this country as being almost a measure of success to own your own home. But more and more people are in the private rented sector. And when you're paying really high rents, the opportunity to be able to save a deposit to purchase a house seems unlikely to me. Well, yes, unfortunately, you know, I think it's, as has been mentioned, this is a crisis decades generations in the making it's a society attitude now to what home ownership is the aspiration since the 1980s isn't it you know you, you're only a success if you have a mortgage if you own your own home if you if you then sell that one and flip it and make more money and you know invest in your future pension it's driven by supply and demand there's a question potentially for developers to answer around their motivations in terms of increase in supply are they building enough or are they not building enough to keep the prices as high as they are at the moment and the reality is, until we start building enough homes to meet the demand year on year, this problem will perpetuate. And like I can see the gap between people's ability to afford a home and keep a home are going to become larger and larger. And there's nothing, at the, unfortunately, it's really sad to say, but there's nothing at the moment that I see that fills me with an awful lot of hope, I suppose. 
It's a bit depressing when I think of my nearly 30th year of my career and think things are probably as bad as they've ever been. And you kind of think, you know, everyone in this room enters into, you know, the work that we do to make a difference, to make things slightly better for people that we help to support and hopefully make things better for the future people who are coming through. And the reality is at the moment that I don't see that. And I'm, I'm very much a glass half full type of a guy, but at the moment it's a struggle to see the, the glass half full. This podcast is supported by Society Matters Community Interest Company. So is the sole answer just building new homes? I mean, what about existing homes? How do we get the balance right between investing and making sure that the existing stock we have is up to standard? Well, certainly that's a huge challenge for social housing providers at the moment, absolutely. And it's, it's been an annual debate that we have with our own board about what is the right kind of proportion. It's important to build new homes, but we mustn't do it to to the point of ignoring the existing stock. That's absolutely not the right answer. So I think you need to take a view and really understand the properties that you own as a landlord. Understand the condition, understand what needs to be done to them, and set high standards as well. You know, We've got in this country the definition of a decent home standard. I think that's pretty basic, and I know the government are talking about improving that, and I certainly welcome that. But we must use our money to drive up the quality of new homes. It's not just about meeting minimum standards. It's about investing to provide, you know, these are homes. These are people's futures. That It's where they, their dreams are met. It's where their families are brought up. We need to provide the right environment for that. And that, that is a significant amount of cost. The, the vast majority of cost that we spend as a business is on looking after our existing homes. I think it's so important, isn't it, when we're making policy to remember that these properties are about homes, they are about dreams, they're about aspirations, they're about where we bring our children up, not just an investment for somebody's future personal wealth. Absolutely right, yeah. And it it does kind of strike me as a bit odd, you know, when we talk about homes, if you look on any brochure or any report, it shows you a picture of the outside of a home, yet we spend half our lives on the inside of a house and maybe 10 minutes looking at it as you walk up the street coming into it. I think we need to spend much more time on what happens on the inside of the house. And if you are going to have you know, a good quality of life, bottom line, you need a good quality house. But sadly, not all dreams are made in homes, are there? We've been hearing a lot in the press recently, particularly about the issue of homes being too cold or too damp in Britain. How prevalent is this issue? And are there particular regions where the issue is more acute? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, obviously we have got 3.8 million homes across the north that don't meet the EPCCM benchmark. Majority of those homes are across the private rented sector. But again, this is a national problem. It isn't just a northern problem. You know, we have cases like that right across the, the country. It's just for the north, it's because we've got that older and that colder, the colder stock. We really, really need to think about, and there is that movement towards it about health and housing and how we bring that together really because at the end of the day housing is a health issue and there are some excellent examples and I think devolution brings a huge opportunity for this. We've seen great examples across Greater Manchester, West Yorkshire and we're embarking on that journey ourselves across the northeast and really trying to link that up and again there's there's some movement going forward in that space about really really thinking about housing and health together as one and working together to look at that. 
I mean, that's true, isn't it, Andrew? Housing and health are absolutely interlinked. Just in The Guardian yesterday, the Royal College of Paediatrics says that the state of Britain's housing is now a crucial issue for child health, with 520,000 rented properties posing a serious and immediate risk to health, something like 31,000 children every year admitted to hospital with respiratory conditions. I find that staggering. Yeah, I mean, housing and homelessness and health are clearly linked. You know, so for the worst forms of the housing crisis, sleep and rough see their life shortened to around about mid-30s for a man who's living on the street. So clearly, you know, the conditions of of homes need to be improved. But it's also, I think, about they have to be in the right place as well. And there is perhaps an argument to say that some of the retrofits and group works that have been completed in some areas of the northeast are perhaps in areas where they are an argument to say that they're potentially in a perpetual state of decline. Because unless you look at the wider economics of that, you know, places where people want to live, as you've mentioned, people want to bring up their children, establish routes. To do that, you need local amenities, you need shops, you need jobs, you need good public transport that's interconnected to where people can access work. And unfortunately, there's large parts of the northeast that that is not the situation. So there needs to be a strategic approach to funding, to retrofit non-decent homes, to bringing back empty homes into use, and to have a plan for truly affordable house building. And without this, we do run the risk of simply kind of repeating the mistakes of the past. Yeah, because certainly in some western cities like Helsinki, Vienna, Barcelona, social housing and home ownership, they're completely interlinked. You wouldn't know one from the other. And that, you know, how that makes people feel about where they live, it's significant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and we all, you know, as being mentioned, you know, social housing wasn't the kind of from a council estate. It was, you know, I'm I'm, I'm in social housing and the majority of people in your class when I was at school were probably living in social housing and nothing was ever thought of it. Attitudes towards home ownership and attitudes towards social housing have changed massively in a, in a generation, where now it's seen as a social problem. It's the problem estate. It's the estate where it's a no-go area. You don't want to live there because you know if you live there, you're going to get tarred with a certain brush, and that is that's a construct. That isn't an accident that that's happened. Political choices have driven the housing crisis. Political choices can end it. They've just got to make the right ones. Certainly in my day job, I'm hearing stories of people who are experiencing terrible housing conditions, you know, black mould, slugs coming out of the walls, and it seems to be taking an inordinate amount of time for those things to, to be repaired. Social housing providers seem to have huge backlogs of repairs that they're trying to get through, exacerbated, I'm sure, by COVID, which made repairing homes very, very difficult. But one of the things that I do hear is landlords and this is across all sectors, seeking to justify houses that are too cold or too damp or covered in mould by saying that it's a tenant's lifestyle that's caused the problem. What do they mean when they say this? Mark? Well, I don't think you would actually find the social housing landlord saying it's a lifestyle problem at all. It's a combination very often of a whole bunch of things. It could be fuel poverty, and particularly so now, Certainly when you look at our customer base, 120,000 people across the country, we were, about three years ago, about 30-odd percent of our customers were in fuel poverty. Now it's over 80%. You know, and just fundamentally, just being able to heat your house, for goodness sake, it should be a basic human right. 80% of our customers are facing real choices, you know, feed the kids or eat the house. That's a real serious choice for people to make. And that can be a contributory effect. House design, you know, our lifestyles have changed 
it used to be, I guess, okay to have a shower in the middle of a house with no ventilation. Don't know why it was deemed okay back in the day. Seems pretty stupid to me, but quite a lot of houses are built a bit like that, and that causes problems. So it's house design, it's heating, it's lifestyle, people's lifestyles. But that's not a reason why people's houses should have damp and mould in them. We need to be able to design homes that are capable of adapting and, and working with the people that live in them. And I just don't think there's any excuse for that. You can't blame it on the customer for doing that. I just think that's just completely wrong. We need to do far better in terms of A, the maintenance, but B, the design and the, and the adaptability of people's homes. And I'll throw this question out to all three of you, but are there successful examples of retrofitting projects that have improved living conditions? Yes, I think you can look right across the country and see some really successful projects. Inevitably, I fear that perhaps that's the low-hanging fruit that we're able to do at the moment. It gets exponentially harder. You're dealing with, I don't know, a tower block in mixed tenancy. You're with homeowners and social rented for, for, and buy-to-let ownership. That's going to be hard. Try dealing with a, a really energy-inefficient Georgian grade, grade 2 listed building terraced house in central London. Goodness knows how you're going to get anything through the planning system to actually improve the energy efficiency of that. And then also, I think we also just need to look at the longer term of this. It's relatively easy. I look at the stock that we own. We could probably get most of our stock to EPCC. The vast majority already is there. We could get the rest to EPCC. That's great. But is that future-proof? I don't think so. And I think we do need to start, you alluded to it earlier, we do need to start taking some hard decisions about the sustainability of the stock that we've got and just how useful and how functional it's going to be into the future. Just um, following on from what Mark just said there about some examples, there's lots right across the social housing sector. At the Northern Housing Consortium, we've embarked on a big piece of work around Real Homes, Real Change, really try to showcase those examples of where energy efficiency have really made a difference around thermal comfort, around well-being, around pride in their home. And as Mark sort of alluded to earlier, this is all comes back down to that housing plan and that long-term vision from government, because for, for social housing particularly, we need that ambitious long-term program. Because it is a challenge. I think I read a report from the Joseph Roundtree Foundation recently that said that 4.3 million people are experiencing fuel poverty and within that are 1 million children. But 39% of them are also experiencing lighting poverty where, you know, we've talked about heat before, but now we're talking about households where the lights are going off at half three at night because it's dark and there's no light coming back on until the sun rises the next day. I find that extraordinary. So the energy efficiency of our homes is clearly a challenge and an imperative based on that very stat alone because we do have some of the worst energy efficient homes in Europe. How realistic is it that we're going to meet our social housing net zero target by 2050? It doesn't seem to me that it's going to be that easy and that it's going to come with a massive price tag. So suppose the obvious question is who's going to pay for that? Is it the tenant, the landlord, the government? I guess in reality it's all three and beyond. And yeah, it's an absolute challenge. Can we get to net zero by 2050? I, I think that is just one enormous task for this country. And certainly I think you know, leading that challenge will be housing associations and local authorities because we have a vested interest in just making the world a better place, I guess. So yes, we will do it, but it's kind of against the odds sometimes. You know, One of the things we really do need, I talked about skills earlier, we're part of a, a consortium called Greener Futures Partnership. We reckon we need 700,000 new people with skills to do that retrofit across the country. 700,000 jobs available, 
but 700,000 gaps in the employment market to actually just do this. So even if we had the cash, we don't have the people to be able to do this. And do we have the, even the technology that's in place to be able to do that? It's emerging stuff at the moment. I think some of it's pretty efficient. It's certainly pretty complicated. And we just don't have a, you know, an active market in all these kind of new forms of energy efficiency that are coming. Europe and Asia are stealing a march on, us, on this. And I think, you know, our UK government has really switched on providing innovation grants. We could become a world leader in kind of new forms of energy efficiency for homes if we really put our minds to it. And if we did all of those things, yeah, I think we have a decent whack at getting to our targets by 2050. But without them, I think it's a hell of a task. Perhaps the public sector can start to get there, but will the private sector? I think that's going to be a a real challenge. Because these technologies, they are emerging at pace, aren't they? And I suppose one of the challenges is, at what point do you actually invest? Because you could go and put hydropower or something similar in all of your properties and then next month there might be something even more innovative. It's quite a skill to work out when to make the leap. Yes, and, and that is the challenge, absolutely, isn't it? I always kind of liken it, not allowed to mention brand names, but remember remember BlackBerry phones? Yes. Great things in the time. Could you change the ringtone on it? It was bloody impossible, wasn't it? And now on an Apple, you can do it in two seconds. Even I can do that. And that's been probably two decades of innovation to get us to be able to do that. And the energy market needs to go through that as well. We learned an awful lot at Home Group. We did Gateshead Innovation Village, where we put different house types with different energy systems next to each other just to see which ones worked best and how people took to it. And it was, it was that level of usability and just a whole new culture. You know, if you go to ground source heating, you need to get used to the fact that the heating is at 55 degrees. It doesn't blast out heat. You need to leave it on 24-7. If you're in full poverty and you tell somebody to leave their heating system on 24-7 to make it work properly, that's a hell of a challenge, isn't it? And, and so there's a whole cultural, technological shift that we need to get if these things are actually going to work. So I think we're, we're probably coming to the end of our conversation, but in wrapping up, there's a couple of questions that I would like to ask each of you. The first is, I mean, it's very clear to me from all we've discussed today that we need more houses. So, you know, and we've talked a little bit about what's stopping us building more, but I'd like to talk to you specifically about the opportunities that devolution presents to us and how that's likely to improve our situation. Sadly, if I could come to you first. Yeah, as I said before, devolution presents a huge opportunity for the housing sector. There's great examples right across the north, really. We've got Greater Manchester, which has been around for a while, and the work that they're doing, and then other areas that are coming through, and like I said, the northeast being one of the newer ones as well. It's really an opportunity for the sector to come together and work with other areas like health, like education, like skills, to really bring housing to the fore of everything around build, around skills, around tackling poverty and ensuring that the people within our communities can thrive and build a better life. And Mark, I know Home Group do a lot of work around employability because I've spoken to some of your team about it in the past. So you're clearly already very active in this space. Yes, absolutely. I think it's very much our mission to work with our customers. So we're delighted if we can get an apprenticeship for one of our customers, maybe even within Home Group, and then get them into full-time employment. And that's a really, you know, thing that's really quite important to us. And tying that to devolution, I think that's just such a brilliant opportunity, and especially so in the northeast, to start to join all these things together. So we're not all doing short-term things in isolation. You're know, great short-term things, no doubt of that. 
and well-intentioned short-term things. But if we can join that up and get some real civic leadership from the local authorities and other organisations like housing associations, like the NHS, et al., to really understand the problems in the North East and the other developed regions, and then to set a plan against those where we can actually understand, we see, we know, we live the problems, then we can invest against them and see the returns. So I'm really, really optimistic about that. I think it's a great potential. Good. And Andrew, what do crisis hope to see from devolution? Yeah, I think with devolution, I mean, we need that strong deal, I guess, ultimately, for local delivery across land, across planning, changes, across funding. But we also need stability. <laughs> and, you know, 16 housing ministers since 2010, I think there was a change yesterday. So that's seven now, just in the past 12 months alone. So if we can devolve those functions but with the right deal, with the right funding and with the right changes that we need locally to free up land, to free up the opportunities that we have, then that's clearly really what we need to see. But as I mentioned earlier, no, homelessness, it's, it's not inevitable. The homelessness that we see are driven by policy choices and inaction by governments. And if we can galvanise action around the political parties, if we can see those policy changes come through, as we've discussed here, then you know, I think there is an opportunity to end it. But what we need to see within those 10 years, when we we're asking for a, a clear plan, what we'd love to see is an office for ending homelessness established for 10 years. That could be part of a devolution deal with the right funding in place to have three pillars around that, bound ending homelessness with homes. So we're asking that 90,000 social housing units be built every year for the next 15 years. We urgently need the unfreezing of housing benefit it's been frozen, it's been mentioned since for the last three years, and it's making properties unaffordable across the board. We need urgent action to support people who are at risk of homelessness so that we can prevent it in all of its forms wherever possible. And we also need the systemic change in the long term, including fixing the welfare system, health and homelessness systems so that people aren't forced into a cycle of coming into homelessness and coming out of homelessness again. And around that, that'll be ensuring that welfare levels are connected to the real cost of the essentials that people need to live, which at the moment, clearly it's not. And I think only with that political plan and the will and the funding, we could see an end to the homelessness crisis and the housing crisis in the northeast. And I hope that those in power will learn from the missed opportunities of the past and seize the opportunities of the future. And hopefully we can see homelessness ended for good. I do want to end with one final question. We've talked about affordable homes, whether that be to buy or to rent. And I think that we concluded that they're not always as affordable as we would like them to be. So regardless of whether we build houses, regardless of their tenure, how do we ensure that the people who need them most get the houses, get the homes? That's equally a challenge. I mean, one, it is still about supply. So if you increase the supply, you can increase the access. There has also, though, been changes through probably a piece of legislation, which certainly probably passed people by when it happened in 2010, which was the Localism Act. And the Localism Act enabled local authorities to fundamentally change how they allocate and how they prioritise the allocation of housing. And it particularly enabled local authorities, through those allocation policies, to make people ineligible for the housing waiting list. In around about three years, I think it was, after the Localism Act came into effect, around about 700,000 people were lost from waiting lists across the country. And some of those people who were lost were the people who were ultimately in the most need. So it was people who perhaps had former tenant arrears, perhaps had history maybe of mental health problems, which resulted in antisocial behaviour, etc. 
So I think we really need to change, I guess, in how we see housing. It, it is a scarce resource that we, at the moment, we need to prioritise and decide who gets access to it and who doesn't. But the way that we flip that is increase the supply. And by increasing the supply, we, we need to change attitudes as well. And that everyone has a right to a home. Everyone has the right to a decent home that's affordable, where they can raise their family and live in peace and quiet. Some people may need a bit more support to enable that to happen. So we need the support systems in place to support people to access those homes at the same time. Sadie, I'm going to come to you next and then we'll give the final word to Mark. I think just building on what Andrew just said there, it is all about supply, but it's also about what was alluded to earlier as part of this podcast. It's about building that understanding of what exactly is it that people want where do they want to live? What is it that they want from their home as well? And ensure that that access is fair and equitable and accessed to all. Thank you. Mark? we just got to build more homes. You know, unless we start doubling, trebling the number of homes that we build in this country every year, we're never going to fix this issue. we just got to get on with it. I think we need some kind of public policy bravery in all of this as well. There's little point in building three times as many homes and then waiting for 10 years and then hoping the problem's fixed. We need to intervene now. And I think intervening in the market in terms of the price of land, what local authorities can do to actually influence tenure in new developments and the type of tenure in new developments. Some local authorities are now talking about it. I absolutely applaud that. That is the right thing to do right now. Thank you very much to Mark, Andrew and Sati for your time today. I really do appreciate you sharing your insights with us. And for listeners who may want to know more about you and your work, how can they connect with you? I'll start with you, Andrew. Yes, you can go to our website, which is www.crisis.org.uk. But I'm also contactable as well, which is on my email, which is andrew.burnup at crisis.org.uk. Sadie? Um, again, website is www.northern-consortium.org.uk. We've also got a Twitter handle at NHC or through my LinkedIn at Sati. Mark? Yeah, Google Home Group. Yeah, you know, they'll come up with a complicated URL. Or just email me, uh, mark.henderson at homegroup.org.uk. Thank you very much. This podcast is hosted by Alison Dunn an award-winning charity chief executive and former solicitor. In this episode, we heard from Sati Rai, the Membership Engagement Manager at Northern Housing Consortium. She delivers a suite of member engagement services to housing associations and local authorities across the three northern government regions, sharing best practice across housing policy areas and celebrating the great work of the sector. Andrew Burnip has worked in homelessness for over 29 years. In June 2015, Andrew joined Crisis, the national homelessness charity, as director of Skylight Services in Newcastle. Andrew is currently the interim director of operations at Crisis, covering Scotland, North and Central England. Mark Henderson is chief executive of Home Group. Home Group is one of the largest developers of housing in the UK. Mark is currently a board member for Homes England and a trustee of Whiteley Homes Trust. He was also a former board member for the National Housing Federation and former chair of Homes for the North.